Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Freshfield's Central Antitrust Asia podcast series. In this series, we speak with local experts across the region to bring you the latest competition law trends and updates. My name is Laurent Bougar, and I am a counsel in the firm's antitrust competition and trade practice based in Hong Kong. In this ninth episode of the series, we'll turn to Indonesia to explore the latest antitrust and merger control trends in that country. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by two experts from Indonesia's ABNR law, which is part of Freshfield's Stronger Together network. So with us is Bilal Anwari, who is a partner at ABNR. He regularly assists international and regional clients and law firms with the Indonesian competition law aspects of global deals before the Indonesian Competition Commission, also known as KPPU, and has also advised in a number of antitrust class actions in Indonesia. Hello, Bilal. Hi, Laurent. Also with us is Gustav Reik, who is a foreign counsel at ABNR. He focuses on, on corporate M&A and competition and antitrust. He's experienced in the full range of cartels, abuse of dominance, and merger control matters, and has worked on several landmark merger control cases in Indonesia. Gustav, welcome to the podcast. Many thanks, Sir Laurent. Well, we, we can get straight into it, and let's maybe start with merger control, because this was the reason to hold this, this podcast episode now, as, as Indonesia has made some significant changes to its merger control regime and its jurisdictional thresholds. So there was a new regulation introduced by the KPPU earlier this year. Could you please give us an overview of the merger control regime in Indonesia and what those key changes are? Yeah, sure, uh, Laurent. Basically, maybe too good to start with that in Indonesia, there were quite a, a lot of merger filings in recent years. And we were involved in quite a few of these filings. And yeah, it turned out that often the KPPU just concluded that the filing or the transaction had no impact on the Indonesian market. And I think that the KPU realized that they were basically a bit too strict in their criteria to determine whether a transaction would be not viable in Indonesia. So basically this regulation was aimed at uh, reducing the number of merger filings. And they have done so basically by making two major changes. So first of all, you would always need to look at the thresholds. And so it's important to determine what is the turnover value and also the asset value of the parties involved in the transaction. Now, under the regulation that was enforced until uh, early this year, the turnover value would be determined by sales in Indonesia. On the other hand, the asset value was determined based on asset value worldwide. And as a result, this threshold was quite easily met, resulting also in a lot of businesses having to notify in Indonesia. Now, they basically changed that by saying that the asset value is now again based on the value of assets in Indonesia only. This was also the approach that they took several years ago before they introduced the uh, last regulation. And so they are back to the old approach, meaning that yeah, you really need to have a certain substantive assets in Indonesia or sales before you would have to notify in Indonesia. And just to remind uh, you, the, the asset value should exceed two and a half trillion, which is around 167 and a half million US dollar. And the annual sales value should be 335 million US dollar. 
But again, these thresholds are based on local value in Indonesia. So that's one important change. The second change is basically the Nexus approach for foreign to foreign transactions. So if you are involved in a foreign to foreign transaction, but some of the parties have turnover or business in Indonesia, then you would need to notify in Indonesia, provided that the other conditions have also been met. And before the introduction of the new regulation, the rules were a bit ambiguous, but basically the KPP would say that even if just one of the parties would have a nexus with Indonesia, so basically through sales or business in Indonesia, then you would potentially already have to notify. Now again, the KPPU went back to the old rule where they say that at least two parties should have a nexus with Indonesia in case of a foreign to foreign transaction. Or of course, if the target is an Indonesian company, you would also need to notify because then clearly there is a nexus with uh, Indonesia. So in practice, it will mean that probably the acquiring party as well as the target should have some kind of sales or business in, in Indonesia. No, thanks very much, Gustav. That's all, that's all very clear. And indeed, these changes or these clarifications rather are very, are very welcome because in practice, there were always, we recall, many questions as to whether a transaction needed to be notified in Indonesia or not. And hopefully these will reduce the frequency of these questions. I just want to pick up on, on something you said on the nexus requirement Given now that it is very clear that both parties or parties to a transaction need to have a nexus to Indonesia for a transaction to be notifiable, would you expect that the KPPU to be more aggressive in enforcing its jurisdiction where even if in a foreign to foreign transaction, for example, there is that double nexus in Indonesia? Well, maybe just to clarify first that if you talk about nexus, the KPPU takes the approach of a single economic entity. And so it means that not only the, the parties directly involved in the transaction should have nexus, but even if they have affiliates, for instance, a sister company or a parent or whatever, any other company within the group has sales or business in Indonesia, that would also be counted as nexus. And so you do not only need to look at the, the sales and uh, the business of the parties directly involved in the transaction, but also at their affiliates, basically. But then when they establish indeed that at least from both parts, the acquiring party or the target, there is a, a nexus with Indonesia, yeah, then the KPU will be very strict. And basically it means that this criterion has been fulfilled. And if the other criteria are also fulfilled, it means that you will have to notify the transaction. And in that regard, it's important to stress that the KPU is uh, very active now in imposing fines on undertakings that, that do a late filing, whether it is those not doing a filing at all or doing it uh, a few days after the deadline. And that also includes companies that are involved in foreign to foreign transactions. So in that regard, you have to be very careful that indeed the KPU is very strict. And if they find out that uh, a transaction should have been notified, they will not hesitate to impose a penalty. And I'm picking up on something you said in terms of the filing deadline, because of course, one of the noteworthy features of the Indonesian merger control regime is that the filing obligation 
arises post-closing, which is different than most merger control regimes worldwide. So you would only make the notification to the KPPU after you have closed, but there is a deadline to respect. And so with that in mind, and given that, as you said, the KPPU has imposed fines for failure to meet the deadline, when should transacting parties start working on their Indonesian filing application? Yeah, that's a very important point you're raising, uh, Laurent. It's a post-merger control regime. You should indeed file after closing, and the deadline is quite short. It's it's 30 business days after closing. And well, okay, may, maybe normally you would say 30 business days is still doable, but we see that also compared to other jurisdictions, what we hear that Indonesia is is quite a challenge in terms of the documentation that you need to prepare. That usually takes a lot of time for clients to collect all the information, corporate documents, financial statements. We need to prepare a an impact, economic impact analysis and things like that. So that is in practice taking a lot of time. Also taking into consideration that often we are part of many other jurisdictions where they do the filing and in Indonesia is then the only one that has to be done post-merger. So we also see that clients are getting a bit uh, tired of all these information requests. <laughs> so it's really important to start uh, on time. And we would say start well before the closing. So there's enough time to prepare. Also, because the KPPU is now very strict on this deadline. And so a few years ago, you could still just submit only a notification form and a power of attorney. And the KPPU would be okay if you would just submit the missing documents later on. That's no longer the case. Within the 30 business days deadline, you basically need to submit all information. And in theory, if you have not submitted all information, the KPPU could just conclude that you fail to make a notification within the 30 business days deadline and impose a penalty. For that reason also, we always try to submit the filing at least a week before the deadline just in case the KPPU would conclude that any information is missing and then the client still has a few days more to collect that information. So it's indeed important to start on time and, and to start before closing. No, thank, thanks very much. I think those are two very helpful practical tips for any businesses facing a, a filing obligation in Indonesia. Maybe let's turn now briefly to enforcement of behavioral rules in, in Indonesia. And, and Bilal, turning to you, how has the KPPU approached cartels and, and other types of behavioral cases? H have there been any changes since the enactment of the new regulation that we just mentioned? Or, or have there been any new procedures? Or is it just same old? Actually, the KPPU has issued new regulation on the procedure for cash handling. Under this regulation, at least there are five violations that is exempt and not subject to change of behavior requests. Among others, Article 5 on price fixing, Article 9 on territorial division, Article 11 of cartel, Article 22 on retrigging, and Article 29 on delay notification or merger case. So under this new regulation, at least these five provisions is exempt from change of behavior requests. Surprisingly, we note from the KPPU report, the cartel case is not much during the KPPU investigation. We note that at least 45 cases 
amounting to 42.8% is a case of delay notification and followed by the case of bit rigging amounting to 40 cases or equal to 38.1%. And then the third one is the non-tender cases amounting to 13 cases or equal to 12.4%. And the last one is partnership cases involving micro, small, and medium enterprise that involve seven cases or 6.7%. Understood. And, and the numbers you cited suggest a very active authority and, and an active enforcement climate. Could, could I just ask you to clarify what, what is meant by a change of behavior order? So under the Indonesian competition law, the KPPU has not recognized the leniency program, but to anticipate the new changing economy, the KPPU tried to be more creative by introducing the new feature, so-called change of behavior requests. So under the new regulation, the KPP may grant a reported party with change of behavior requests at two phases of pre-investigation or preliminary examination, while under old regulation, this feature only available at preliminary examination. So basically, if the reported party has submitted a proposal for change of behavior, they cannot file again in the preliminary examination phase. The new regulation provides a specific and crystal clear restriction that cartel conduct, including price fixing, market allocation, cartel, bid rigging, as well as failure to file notification cannot be settled through change of behavior commitment. This is a different from the old regulation, which allowed all types of violation to the change of behavior procedures. So how this mechanism is implemented? Basically, during the pre-investigation stage, the reported party is allowed to request change of behavior along with a statement of change of behavior to the KPP without admission of guilt. If the proposal is accepted, the KPPU then instruct the relevant task force to perform monitoring of the proposal implementation within a certain period. If the change of behavior has been fully implemented, the KPPU may issue an order to cease the investigation of the case and then the case can be dismissed. Understood. So it seems to be a bit of a hybrid instrument between leniency on the one hand, as you say, and then commitments on the other, which is quite interesting. Just moving on, we know that digital markets have been very much under the antitrust spotlight everywhere around the world. I'm wondering whether this is the same in, in Indonesia. Definitely, Laurent. There is definitely a focus on digital markets. Although, again, as, as Bilal already said, the majority of the cases is still about tender rigging. And now also on partnerships with small medium enterprises. That's a, a new provision basically under aid law that can be enforced by the KPPU to make sure that small medium enterprises are protected in competition with large companies. There are a lot of cases on that quite right now. But yeah, the few cases that are related to particularly abuse of dominance often relate to the digital market. And there you can see that the KPPU is, is learning fast and they are also sort of following uh, global trends. Despite the application for a uh, change of behavior request, the KPU has now decided that they want to do further investigation. 
What have you observed as the KPPU's main challenges in enforcing competition law in, in Indonesia? Well, to start with a more general comment, it's important to be aware that the KPPU's enforcement powers are quite limited, also compared to competition authorities in other jurisdictions. So, for instance, it's not possible for the KPPU to do a dawn rate, at least not alone. It would have to involve the police, and in practice, therefore, it's not happening a lot. A lot of the evidence that the KPPU in practice will need to use in its investigations are documents provided by third parties, testimonies, and also often they need to use indirect evidence. For instance, in abuse of dominance cases, they heavily rely on indirect evidence and all kinds of economic theories to prove that there is indeed an abuse of dominance. So for that reason, the KPPU often also is unable to win in court. And so if there's any party deciding to appeal a case, particularly if it's based on indirect evidence, we often see in practice that it's hard for the KPPU to win the case at the court level because we see that the Indonesian courts are very critical about the use of indirect evidence. And if that is just one of the two pieces of evidence that is needed basically to prove that there is anti-competitive behavior, you will see that the KPU will often not win the case. Just finally, by, by way of conclusion, you know, clearly KPPU is very active as, as an authority. Indonesia has you know, been in the press over several months and years now as a very dynamic economy, growing economy, attracting lots of foreign investment. So what your best practice guidelines be for foreign clients doing business in Indonesia and, and dealing with Indonesian antitrust law? I think the foreign client may consider the new feature introduced by the KPPU, where the KPPU issued a guidelines in 2022 on the compliance guidelines that provide valuable resources for developing and implementing effective competition compliance program. So now the companies can now ensure fair business practice and obtain benefits from new compliance program guidelines. So this update introduced a program designed for companies to implement and ensure all the employees follow fair business competition principles. And this program offers the company with the improved compliance, reduced risk, and enhanced reputation. But again, this feature is only used by at least 80% of Indonesian state-owned company. So at least only 20% of the applicant is local and foreign investment company. So there is still room for the client to file this because the advantage by applying or file compliance program ratified by the KPPU is that it will give benefit for the applicant or the client if there is any investigation related to competition law it will give them some reduction in terms of penalty and as well as to mitigate the risk of violation of Indonesian competition law once the client has a complete set of compliance program endorsed and verified by the KPPU. It's very interesting. Sounds like a bit of an antitrust insurance policy. A any final comments from you, Steph, on, on best practices? We should just stress that 
it's very important to take competition compliance very seriously now. I know that Indonesia for many years was always yeah, sort of considered the jurisdiction where competition compliance was maybe not so much of a concern. Maybe also something you still see with local companies. I realized that a lot of local companies don't take com competition compliance that serious. But I think from some of the examples that we've mentioned, you can already see that the KPQ uh, has become very active in uh, enforcing antitrust law. And there are also serious risks now, particularly for cartel and abuse of dominance. There are now profit and turnover-based penalties, which can be very high. So recently, the KPQ also imposed a fine on several companies amounting to 70 billion rupiah, which is around 5 million US dollar, and to one business in that case of around 3 million US dollar. So indeed, the penalties are really becoming higher, and the KPU is also becoming more active. And yeah, you see that a lot of foreign companies with business in Indonesia are also being investigated. So it is becoming a serious risk and a risk that needs to be taken seriously. Okay, that's loud and clear. Thanks very much. Well, it's been an insightful discussion on the developments in, in antitrust and merger control in Indonesia. Thank you again to both guests, Bilal and Gustav. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode of our Essential Antitrust Asia series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please email us using the links in the show description. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks very much.